Okay, Acts 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Acts 2. How many of you played fantasy football this, this year or the past years? So I have three sons, and they, they for years had been after me to start a fantasy football league that they could all be a part of. And until this past year, I resisted for two reasons. One is I can't keep track of all the password information I already have, the stuff I need. And I'm like, now I've got to be responsible for three other password combinations. But the other, the real reason was there are three of them and one of me. So the odds of me winning are small, and I don't like to lose to my sons. And so I resisted for years until this past year. Um, and so we had it. And I didn't lose to my sons. I lost to my brother, which is just as bad. So fantasy football, it, it puts you in charge of a fictional team, and it, and it asks you, like, how, how would you build a successful team? Right, so you have to select the right players. You've got to pick the, a good quarterback and a, an explosive receiver and maybe a strong defense. And so the, the winner of this made-up game is the one who, who picks the right combination of individuals to make his team a success. I want you to imagine a game called Fantasy Church. Right? How would you build a church? Who would you need in order to guarantee success? So, so you've got a draft for a fantasy church. And in your first round, you're like, I know what we need. Like, we need a really charismatic preacher. Like, someone who can get up there, tell great stories. We're weeping, we're crying, we're laughing, we're cheering, and we're leaving. Like, that, that's what we need in first round. Second round, where you're debating, do I, do I go with the, the excellent worship leader? Or do I go with, like, the fantastic kids, pastor, church, kids, church program? Like, who do, who's better? Who's more necessary? I think if we did something like that, it, our draft list would look quite a bit different than the list Jesus might compile. Because I, I, we have this problem, which is that we misunderstand what Jesus uses to build his church. So Acts tells the story of the unstoppable Christ. Right? It, it begins with him having ra- ra- risen from the dead and then he ascends to heaven. And, and what we find is that he builds his church through disciples that are fully devoted to him. So what, what's remarkable about Jesus' plan is how he uses unremarkable people who have given him their whole selves. They've given him their heart, their soul, their mind, their strength. It's devoted disciples, not superstars, who are the building blocks of the church. So this, this morning I want to study just a few verses in Acts 2, and I want us to see this, how God uses devoted disciples to build his church. It's their devotion to him and their devotion to each other that produces something so unique that people around them are drawn to Jesus. So let's read Acts 2, beginning in verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Okay, so I want you to see two main things. The first one is that Jesus builds his church through disciples devoted to him. Okay, so the very first verb in this text is devoted. And, and so the sense of this, this word is the idea of, of perseverance and consistency, that true devotion requires time. So, so we, all, we all know someone who latches on to new fads. You're probably thinking of that person you know 
right? Anytime there's something new, they, they go in fully for like a month or two. So like, oh, I'm, they're going to they're, they're, oh, they're go, be a golfer. And so they go out and they buy a new bag and new clubs, all of the golf clothes. And within about six weeks, it's in a, it's in a closet and they never pick it up again. And they, they're so devoted, right? Well, no, they're not devoted because devotion demands consistency. A guy who dates a different woman every month, is he's not devoted to anyone but himself. And, and so these disciples, they, they demonstrate consistent devotion to Jesus. And this stems from the fact that they understood they were in the last days. So the, the previous count in chapter 2 is Peter preaching at Pentecost. And he argued that the last days had begun because the Messiah had come. Jesus had come. So being in the, in the last days should inspire devotion, not vacation. We were on vacation last July 4th. We were, we were down at the beach, and so we, we, took, our, we took our beach chairs out, and we, we sat on the beach as it started to get dark to, to watch the fireworks. And so as you, as you watch fireworks, it happens every time. Right? We, we get about five, ten minutes in the fireworks, and you, a few fireworks go off, and someone says, was that the finale? Oh, no, no, it wasn't the finale. Okay, oh, a bunch of fireworks again. Was that the finale? No, that was the finale. You, you'll know when the finale comes. And finally, after a lot of false finales, like, it just goes crazy. And no one asks at that point, right? Oh, they know, like, this, this is the finale. See, when the fireworks get bigger, the closer you get to the finale. Like, we're closer to the finale than the apostles were. And so our devotion should be bigger, should be greater, should not be less. So, but what does that look like? It's easy to say, okay, be devoted to Jesus, but what does it look like? Well, that's what verse 42 details for us. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So the church, they demonstrated their devotion to Jesus by devoting themselves to the apostolic teaching about Jesus. Right? The, the church is a word-driven community. So ever since the church began, it has had this practice where it gathers together to listen to the teaching about Jesus. The Holy Spirit has, he has descended, he has filled the disciples, and he creates this hunger for the word that he wrote. It, the filling of the Spirit, it never leads a person away from the teaching of the Bible, but it leads the church to the teaching of the Bible. So if a church wants to be healthy, they have to have the right diet. And the diet which, which produces spiritual strength, the diet which produces spiritual stamina, is a diet that is rich in the Word of God. It's not an accident that the very first thing mentioned is devotion to the Word of God, commitment to the Scriptures. Like, this is true. Devoted disciples always have a hunger for the Word of God. Why is that so important? Why is it so important that, that we embrace biblical teaching i want you to think for a moment about these these first christians they've grown up in judaism they've gone to the temple consistently to the synagogue consistently they've offered sacrifices their their teaching has been from the scribes and pharisees so jesus comes and he basically says hey you know everything these scribes and pharisees have been teaching you it's pretty much been wrong and so, so now they follow Jesus. And right about the time they start following Jesus, Jesus says, I'm going to heaven. Well, how, how, do, how are they going to learn how to follow Jesus? 
how are they going to learn? Wait, wait, all, wait, all the stuff I learned and taught in the temple, you're saying it, that's, it's, not, it's not what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm not supposed to offer sacrifices. I, I'm not, I don't I have to worry about what I eat in the same way. I, 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 how, how are they going to figure out how to do Christianity? How will they ever learn to think differently than those around them? Well, they, they learn to follow Jesus in the midst of a resistant culture through biblical teaching. Listen, we, we breathe the air of a culture that is fervently opposed to Jesus. But whether, whether you grow up in a Christian home or you don't, you've got to learn to think counterculturally. How do you learn to do this? Well, it's only through the teaching of the scriptures. And this is why as a church, I know you do this, you, you, you unapologetically soak everything you do with scripture. I know this. This is a church that from its very first days has been deeply devoted to the word of God. Let me just encourage you, press in even more. Like this summer, there's these opportunities to grow in your understanding of the word of God. You're going to talk about the roles of men and women. Guess what? The Bible speaks counterculturally about that. How do you know? Well, you've got to study it. You've got to be here. You've got to engage. Like, take advantage of all the opportunities God puts in front of you so that you can be devoted to the biblical teaching. But a warning, devotion to the teaching, it assumes more than listening. It assumes obedience to what you've been taught. So these Christians didn't just, like, go listen to the word and be like, hey, Peter, good sermon, and leave. Right? They, they applied the word to their lives. They put the teaching into practice. If a, if a friend of yours was, was telling you about his, his dog, he's like, you've never met my dog, but I ah, the best dog. I'll tell you, this dog, this dog is so devoted to me. Like, I mean, I'll tell you, this dog, no matter where I go, no matter what I do, no matter what I say, this dog, I'll tell you, he, he is devoted to me as his master. And so he invites you over to meet his dog, and as soon as he says something, he's like, come here, boy, and the dog walks the other way. He's like, okay, play dead, and the dog jumps up and down. The dog runs up to you and he starts licking you and he says, stop licking, and the dog doesn't stop. At what point do you be like, I don't think he's that devoted to you. Like He doesn't do anything you tell him to do. See, devotion means not only hearing, but also obeying. So devotion to Jesus is revealed by devotion to the teaching of the word and a determination to obey what we're taught. But notice verse 42, they're also devoted to fellowship. Now, this is the first time we find this word in the New Testament. But from this point forward, it's used regularly to describe the practice of the church. Every use of the word fellowship includes the idea of sharing. These Christians share their life together. One way to think of fellowship is as devotion or participation in the common life. So Jesus Christ has united every Christian to himself, and then by virtue of that, united them to each other. And so as Christians, you share a common life together in Jesus. And the early Christians were devoted to this common life. One of the ways this worked itself out was in church membership. Because we find this throughout Acts, that when someone's saved, then they're baptized, and they follow that, it says, by being added to the church. They committed themselves to a local assembly where they could participate in the common life. Verse 46, the common life included meeting in the temple and from house to house. Well, this is why you guys meet on Sundays and then have these groups that meet throughout the week. 
right? You're, you're trying to put into practice the same type of participation in the common life of Christians that the first church did. See, now we know this. Just attending doesn't mean you participate in the common life. But I'll tell you this. It starts with attending. You're not participating if you never come. So let me just encourage you, especially as we start the summer, just consider your own commitment to the church. Commit your, consider your own commitment to the gatherings of the church based upon what you see here. Like these, these Christians, they built their lives and they built their schedules around meeting with other Christians. Gathering with other brothers and sisters, this was a priority to them. And we live in a culture where this type of commitment is foreign. So I was recently talking with a friend who's a pastor, and he, he related his, his first experience with what he called lake culture. So he lives in a fairly affluent area where, where it seems everyone owns a lake home. And so, so on weekends, this is what happens, especially summer weekends. Friday afternoon, everyone gets off work. They, they load up their vans, they load up their SUVs, and they head up to the lake. And they spend all weekend at the lake, and they come back Sunday afternoon. And by everyone, like I mean everyone, Christians, non-Christians alike, in this case, the Christians, they, they exhibit the very same values as the non-Christians around them. They show greater devotion to their leisure than they do to each other. So imagine, imagine the impact of, of a family that has a Christian family. They, maybe they've been part of lake culture for a number of years and one year they start loading their van up at the lake house every saturday afternoon and somebody says well what are you doing and they're like well we're heading back well why, why are you going back a day early and they say well we just we don't want to miss worshiping jesus with our brothers and sisters in our church that's the type of devotion they had to the common life i don't know if you've heard of the babylon bee it's this christian website that uses satire satire to make a point Right, so it takes this, this nugget of truth and it presents it in an exaggerated way. But the, but the power of it is in that nugget of truth. So I remember, I don't know if I read the article because I only, usually read the headlines. They're funny. But one of the, the headline of one of the articles they wrote was this. After 12 years of quarterly church attendance, parents shocked by daughter's lack of faith. I mean, it's a bit over the top. But we see the nugget of truth, don't we? Right? Devotion to the, the gathering of Christians is steeply declining as more and more Christians, they embrace the individualism promoted by our culture and reject the commitment seen by these first disciples. Okay, so the early Christians, they, their devotion to Christ was seen by their devotion to, to apostolic teaching, to fellowship, and then we see verse 42 through the breaking of bread and prayers. The breaking of bread refers to the Lord's Supper. So this is what... This is what happened when the church gathered the gospel of jesus was both proclaimed and it was seen in this 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 observance of the lord's supper let me just encourage you brothers and sisters never assume the gospel like as if somehow we've heard it enough we we need these regular reminders of god's grace in spite of our sin and so when we eat the lord's supper when we eat that broken bread and we drink those crushed grapes we're presented of this visible reminder of how Jesus was crushed and his body was broken in our place. And we're assured of this. God loves you this week. God loves you in spite of your sin. God has grace and mercy in spite of your failure. Like This is something we need. This is something we desperately need. 
if you're not a Christian, this is the heart of the Christian message. We are sinners who deserve nothing less than judgment, but God is merciful, and through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son Jesus, he has made a way for us to be forgiven of our sin, washed clean, and embraced as part of his family. He doesn't require effort on our part, only repentance and faith, which is turning from our sin and coming to Jesus. Like This is the message to which the early disciples devoted their lives. But they didn't just look inward at their sin. They looked upward to God in prayer. 26 of the 28 chapters in the book of Acts, they record someone praying. Many of them record the church praying. That's because prayer is to be as natural to the Christian as breathing. Like prayer, prayer is what reminds us that as Christians we live in two worlds. We aren't fully at home in this world because our true home is in heaven. You say prayer is why the successful church doesn't need to draft wealthy members. So if you had that church draft, probably in your top few rounds, you'd be like, I need a giver, like someone who can write the big checks. Because church is so much easier when someone's writing big checks. Like prayer is why we don't need that. Because we serve the God who owns all things. Our resources come from God, that God meets more needs through one praying Christian than through 100 wealthy ones. So I remember talking to one of the deacons at our church named Scott. And we were, we were talking one day, and, he, and something came up about, you know, we're purchasing some land as a church and meeting with an architect and a building and all this. Because like you, we rent a facility on Sundays. So we talked for a few minutes, and I just sort of jokingly said, Hey, Scott, you don't, you don't have a couple extra million dollars on you, do you? And he said, without any hesitation, No, but God does. I'm like, he's right. God does. God, God has everything we could ever need. Plus, listen to this. He's commanded us to ask him for it. Like, so the issue is not God's generosity or God's willingness. The issue is our lack of asking. So their devotion to Jesus was seen in their devotion to teaching, to fellowship, to worship, to prayer. They listened to the word about Jesus. They shared life with other followers of Jesus. They celebrated the gospel of Jesus, and then they brought their requests to Jesus. And as they did this, they saw the power of Jesus at work in them and through them. They were in awe of what Jesus was doing in their midst. Look at verse 43. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many signs were being done through the apostles the greater your devotion to Jesus, the more you will see Jesus at work in and through you. Like Jesus builds his church through disciples devoted to him. But then the second thing is Jesus builds his church through disciples devoted to each other. Like Jesus and his disciples go together. You can't separate them. Like it, it's impossible. Listen to this. It's impossible to be devoted to Jesus without being devoted to Christians. Maybe you've heard someone say, I love Jesus, but I just don't like the church. But that, that doesn't come from the Bible. In fact, the Bible and Jesus himself in the Bible says the exact opposite. Jesus commanded his disciples to love each other. And he said, it is your devotion to each other, which will be a sure sign of your devotion and discipleship of me. How will people know you, they, that you follow me, Jesus says? Because of the way you devote yourself to each other. So look at verse 44. This is what they do. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So the, the disciples' devotion to each other was seen in their willingness to share their time, their money, and their food. Like time, time is our most precious commodity. Once spent, we never get it back. We can get money back. You can spend it. You can return that item and get your money back. You can't get your time back. But these Christians, verse 40 says, 44 says, were together. They shared their time. In fact, I would say this. They, they didn't see time as theirs. It wasn't their time. Like, do you see time as yours? Oh, this is, this is my time. Because if you do, you're going to struggle to share it with others. I've noticed some people are, they are church ninjas. Because they can slip in and out without anyone ever noticing they're there. Like, that takes remarkable skill. But, but it's not a trait you should desire. Because what it shows is selfishness. It shows devotion to yourself and not others. But I know some of you are thinking, wait, but I'm an introvert. I, I don't like crowds. Well, either the, the thousands of people who made up this first church were all extroverts, or the introverts cared enough about their fellow Christians to embrace the discomfort of sharing time and conversation. Like no, nowhere in our text, even in the original Greek, do you find excuses for keeping to yourself? How do you use your time? Like, we're all busy. I'm, I'm still waiting to meet that person who's like, I'm not busy. I got nothing going on. Every person, how are you doing? Oh, it's just a busy time. We're all busy. But I've also never met a person who couldn't find the time to do what they really, really want to do. Like, if you want something bad enough, you can find time to do it. If you want to serve your brothers and sisters at Christ Fellowship badly enough, you can find time to do it. In fact, every excuse you'd make, it'll just melt away if you say, this is how I want to spend my time. Nothing is an adequate substitute for time. Like, there have been studies. Like, what's more important, quality time or quantity time? Wait all on the answer, right? Both. Like, you need both. If, if we love someone, if we really want to care for them, we've got to give them both quality time and quantity time. And I've heard people say this in my church, but I don't have any time. They have the exact same amount of time as everyone else sitting in the room. There's no one in here who has less time today than anyone else. All of us have 24 hours today. The only difference is how we choose to use it. Like Time goes fast. The older we get, right, the, the more we realize how quickly time goes. Let me just say, use the time you have to serve other people. Don't waste it to work, like working a zillion hours or, or spending it on yourself or consuming just mindless entertainment or, or slaving away on your to-do list. Like, take your time and share it with the people in this room. Give, give them your, your most limited and your most precious commodity as a token of devotion to them. So these are the Christians. They shared their time with each other, and they also shared their money. Verse 45. Some have suggested this was an early form of communism, and Christians should be communists. Like that's not the point. This is not coerced communal living. It's not some top-down redistribution of wealth. 
What this describes is Christians that are so devoted to each other that when a brother or sister is in need, someone would see the need, they would go sell some of their stuff, take the resources they got, and they would provide for the person in need. This was driven by devotion to each other in the midst of difficulty. But listen, it was also predicated on on spending enough time with each other that they would notice each other's needs. Like parents, parents do this with children. We, we spend so much time with our children that we know what they need. So we're like, man, those are some crooked teeth. We need braces. Why, why do you keep squinting? Oh, we need glasses. Oh, those, those jeans, you should stop wearing them. They, they have holes in places. Jeans shouldn't have holes. Right? Like, like their stomach starts growling. I, I, actually, my boys eat so much that they don't even give opportunity for their stomachs to growl. But... <laughs> If their stomach growled, we'd notice it and be like, oh, you need food. Like, because of time and proximity, we notice needs. And because of love, we meet needs. Like Love is more than a warm feeling. Love is decisive action to put the good of someone else before your own good. So, so when we're commanded to grow in love, it doesn't mean, hey, have warmer feelings for those people with you. Like, just when you think about them, make sure you, it's a really warm feeling, a sensation. It means care enough to meet their needs. Sacrifice something you want for their good. Go without so they don't have to. I'm encouraged by some conversations I've had with, with some of the members of my church recently who, who God is causing to rethink how they use their money. He's helping them grow in generosity. So I think of two conversations I had with members who who've told me about decisions they've made to take some excess funds. And they, they were both, they were tempted to save them, they were tempted to spend them, but instead they said, I, God, help us see how we could share those with someone else in need. Like, friends, this is exactly what the early church did. Devotion to one another was not a slogan, it was a practice. They literally put their money where their mouth was. They showed devotion by sharing their time and money with those around them. And they also shared their food. Now, due to persecution, due to drought, sharing food was a necessity in order to care for them. But even in times of plenty, Jesus and his followers were always known for their generosity at the table. Like sharing your table is a way of sharing your heart. Inviting someone to a meal is an invitation to friendship. I love the fact that one of the main criticisms leveled at Jesus by those religious elite is his practice of eating with sinners. Like, that's what they could come up with. You, Jesus, you eat with sinners. Like, why did they criticize him this way? Well, it wasn't the meal. It was the love displayed in the meal. They, they saw his love for sinners expressed by inviting them to eat with him. Like this, is, this is a simple way for you to care for each other. Eat together. Demonstrate hospitality. Invite other people into your life and into your home. Like, wouldn't you love it if any time a person visited this church for the very first time, they received not just one but multiple invitations to lunch? Like, man, what's up with those people? Like, everyone I talked to invited me to lunch. Like, wouldn't it be cool if the, the greatest criticism that someone could find about this church is like, man, those people eat with sinners. 
like opening your home, opening your table, what we call hospitality. It's a great way to be a witness for Jesus. One of Jesus' main strategies for reaching people with the good news was an invitation to dinner. Like he famously looked up at short Zacchaeus in this tree and he said what? He's like, come on, we're going to dinner. Let's go eat. And at that meal, his life was transformed. I'm sure that many in this room, many of you put great effort into planning meals, into cooking meals. Uh, I'm sure with this many people, there are some who have detailed meal plans like every day, sides, every meal, you, you've detailed every, others, maybe you're, you're just very detailed with where your diet, like I eat specific things, don't eat other things. I want to encourage you to add one more category to your meal planning, add a column for who you're going to invite. How can you take something you're going to do anyway, and someone else is going to do anyway? You're going to eat, they're going to eat. How can you take it and infuse it with gospel intention? Like, hey, if we do this together, if I invite them to do this with me, this is an opportunity to love them because Jesus loves me. Sharing a meal was so common amongst the first Christians that it's described with this wonderful phrase, verse 46. It says, They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Their meals were characterized by joy, modesty, and gratitude. No one forced them to share their food together. They did it out of joy. So so these were not elaborate banquets. The word translated generous actually means sincere or modest. Like there's no pretension, no frills. Martha Stewart had nothing to do with this meal. Right? They all they did was ate. They laughed, they cared, and they thanked God. Like I, I love that picture of the church. I would love that if when someone thought of the church I pastor, that what they would, would come to mind is a people who eat together, who invite others to join them, who do it free from anything artificial or contrived, all the time praising God and caring well for those around them. If that was the picture that came to mind, I'd be thrilled. Now this this passage, it concludes in this arresting way. Look at verse 47. It ends by saying, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So because of the evident devotion of the disciples, person after person was turning to Jesus Christ for salvation. How does this happen? Well, their devotion to Christ and each other made them stand out. It made them strange. It made them unique. It made them weird. But they were weird in a compelling way. They were weird in a way that made people think, you know, I want to be weird like that. They had a compelling weirdness. I'd love this morning to stamp that phrase on your heart. Compelling weirdness. Maybe afterwards, let's all go get tattoos. Let's say compelling weirdness. Can you do it without needles? Like this is what made the early Christians stand out. They were so devoted to Jesus and to each other, demonstrated in tangible ways that people looked at them and thought, that is weird, and I want to know more. I want to give you one example of compelling weirdness. So less than a year ago, some members from Redeemer, they, they anonymously bought a van for another family in church. It's, it's a family, they're named the Mormon family. That's not what they practice. The Mormon family had six kids 
under six, six and under. So six kids, six and under. And I don't know all the details because this was done anonymously, but it's an amazing illustration of what we see in this passage. So, so they lived in proximity to one another. They shared together this common life. And because of it, some members saw a need. Like how do you fit a family of eight with like four car seats or five car seats into a vehicle? And they couldn't. They would have to drive two cars anywhere they wanted to go. So some saw that need, and they used the resources that God had given them to meet it. And they did so without seeking any honor or glory for themselves. When the van was presented to Davin and Kristen Mormon and their six kids, it was a complete surprise. Now, if that were just the end of the story, like that is an amazing story. I had nothing to do with it, so I can tell it in all of its glory. Amazing story. I heard that the salesman from the dealership was blown away by this. So he was a part of making everything legal, right? The, the sale, the purchase, the gift, the title, all the stuff that goes into it. And he was, he was shocked at the generosity of these anonymous givers. Like, of, of course he was, right? It's weird to give your money to buy a van for someone else. Like, who does that? Well, followers of Jesus do. And honestly, we don't think it's that weird. Like Jesus gave his life for David and Kristen and Mormon and their six kids. Is it that really that big a deal to give them a van? Like that, that kind of weirdness, that's compelling. Now weirdness like this is only compelling if it's accompanied by great joy and pure motives. Like if, if weirdness is mandated or scripted, it's not compelling. Some of us grew up around some churches, around some people that had mandated or scripted weirdness. And that is not compelling. So, so if, you, if you leave the lake house early because your pastor threatens you, if you don't, that's not compelling. If, if you buy the van because the church has some, some great marketing campaign, it's not compelling. But when you, with a glad and generous heart, joyfully devote yourself to Christ and his people, the resulting weirdness is compelling. Like this is why Jesus says that our love for him and our love for each other is a powerful evangelistic tool. That when they see your love for each other, Jesus says in John 17, they will know that God sent me and God loves them. Like the people around you, they long for deep, meaningful relationships. The people around you at work, in your neighborhood, at the restaurant, they long for something transcendent. And when they see it in your devotion to Christ and his people, they thirst for a similar experience. It's, it's like a child from a broken home who spends a day or a weekend with a happy family. Like He may think some of the rules are a bit weird. And he may be surprised at, at how they spend their time. But if given the choice... He'd love to be part of a family like that. I I know many of you, so I can say this. There's some weirdness here. And I think it's compelling. But I'm confident of this. There can be more. You guys can get weirder. (laughs) Right? Because you can grow more devoted to Christ and more devoted to each other. And, And the more devoted you grow to Christ and each other, the more unique that will be. Let me just tell you how encouraging it is. I pastor a weird church. 
filled with, filled with like a bunch of weirdos. We sent one to you, but we still got a bunch of weirdos. And it's really encouraging. In fact, one of our members was just was telling me about a conversation they had with some family who lives in our town, but this family doesn't go to our church. So, so this family member who doesn't attend our church was talking with some people in our town and said this, you should go to my daughter's church reading. And here's why. He says they're different at that church. We are we're different. We're weird. And it's the work of Jesus in us. Like he makes us different. We're different in devotion. And he uses that difference to build his church. I, let me say my prayer for you is that God will continue to make you different here at Christ Fellowship. Father, I pray for these brothers and sisters. I'm thankful for them. I'm thankful for their devotion to you and each other. I've heard so much. I've seen a number of times their devotion to each other, their commitment to you. But I pray that you will continue to stir up in them greater devotion, greater love for you, greater love for others. May they love their community. May they love their neighbors. May they love their coworkers. And may that love be so unique, so strange, so weird that it is shocking to those who see it. And make it compelling. The things that they long for, the, the community, the relationships, the transcendence, the friendships, may all of these things be evident here and powerfully so, so that people are drawn by your spirit to the gospel which changes, which empowers, which makes all of these things real. So God, I pray for them. May they be a compelling witness to this community through their devotion to you and their devotion to each other. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.